Hi there and welcome to Colour Fit Chat number 12. This week we're incredibly lucky to have Matt Springham on the show, although my wife is a little furious with him because after reading his CV, it's left me feeling a little impotent. So here we go. Matt is Senior Lecturer in Strength and Conditioning Science and Exercise Physiology at St Mary's University. He's a Technical Lead in Strength and Conditioning at the Royal Ballet Company. Matt is a UK SCA accredited Strength and Conditioning Coach. Base is accredited sport and exercise scientist, a chartered scientist and fellow of the HEA and he's currently completing his PhD looking at training load, performance and fatigue. On top of all that, Matt has worked in professional football for over 12 years, working in several Premier League, Championship and English national teams. In this episode, Matt talks about nutrition principles he's seen working football, the challenges in working with elite ballet dancers, and he discusses the current research regarding training load for football and ballet. It's an absolutely fantastic show, and remember, if you want to add opinion or questions, then please get involved with the Colour Fit Chat, which is on Wednesdays at 7pm. Really hope you enjoy the show. Okay guys, um, thanks for listening in. The first question that I've been asked is to explain what the biggest nutritional lessons are that I've learned from working in football. Um, before I get into that, I, I, I guess I've got to, uh, I've got to say I'm not, a, I'm not a nutritionist by training. I've got a, a relatively basic understanding, you know, consistent with um, graduate level, um, you know, sports science education, that, that sort of stuff. Um, but in my experience, the most important thing is to make sure that the basics are in place before you try to get into the more, you know, detail and intricacies of nutritional understanding with players, because oftentimes it's the basics that, that aren't in place in, in most of, well, certainly in the cohorts that I've worked with, you know, most football players. Um, and so I would tend to box food groups off into basic um, messages, you know, foods that promote health, foods that promote energy, foods that promote recovery. Um, and try and make sure that there's a you know a logical balance and a, a, a yeah a sensible balance in in those things and then once that we, you know once we've developed that kind of level of understanding we might get into some more sort of um, macronutrient ratio analysis in players making sure that um you know the the amount of carbohydrate proteins and fats are consistent with the the type of training intensities and volumes that we're asking those guys to do um which again is is very much a you know a, I guess a relatively simple process, um, and then if you're lucky to have the resource, you know, which a lot of a lot of teams um, until relatively recently ha haven't been, but you know, having an expert in sports nutrition, I think you know would be very high on my agenda. Were I to go back in as a head of sports science at a football club again, you know, someone who's got a a higher level of understanding of sports nutrition than I do, which I've said is relatively limited, you know, to be fair, it's not my areas of speciality. But then I think um, the key thing to consider here is um, trying to promote a culture such that the, you know, the players make sensible decisions um, in the other 20 or 22 hours of their day when there isn't a sports scientist, you know, or a member of the sport and exercise science support team to um, guide them through their food choices, you know, so that they the culture is in place for them to to eat correctly and make the right decisions. Okay, the next question that I've been asked is um, to explain what the best integrated nutritional support services that I've experienced at a professional football club. Um, and the honest answer is I've experienced a, a, a very varied level of nutritional support service in professional football. You know, I've um, 
been fortunate and unfortunate to work in environments where um, I am, I guess, the sole lead in sports nutrition. And, you know, I, I have a fairly limited understanding of sports nutrition, you know, compared to those guys that have gone on to do um, specialist postgrad degrees in that area and uh, PhDs and, you know, applied research. Um, and I've been fortunate to work in environments where we have consultant sports nutritionists, you know, specialists that have got uh, a, a much greater detailed understanding than I have. Um, but the the best environment I've worked with, the best practice that I've seen um, was at the, uh, the last football club that I worked at. Um, and the structure was very much... Um, um, integrated in, in that, you know, we had a, a team of sports scientists and, and S&C coaches that were tracking, you know, training volumes and training load and communicating these things to a sports nutritionist and a specialist sports nutritionist that was trying to map training volume and intensity and appropriately periodize nutritional um, intake, uh, you know, uh, around the, um, the forecasted fluctuation in volume and load. Um, and, you know, bits and pieces were individualized. So there was some um, uh, food diary analysis and there was uh, some analysis of some systemic markers to inform the types of food groups that individuals should be consuming and I guess in, on top of that we were doing bi-weekly salivary ana analysis of stress and immunoendocrine markers so we could um, you know I guess more on, on a more individual basis inform things like probiotic supplementation and antioxidant supplementation and then, you know, we coupled that with um, just some basic logical um, hygiene practices around the training ground and stadium. So, you know, we used antibacterial handles around the training ground. We used alcohol gels. Um, we tried to limit handshaking. Um, and we did these things to um, simply promote um, good hygienic practice, good nutritional practice limiting the risk of um of of illness and um i have to say in 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 that case we had a very good um a very good season in terms of uh, you know injury and well and illness occurrence okay the um, next question that i've been asked is um what is the primary challenge of working with professional ballet dancers so i'm sure that you know very, very few people will, will know, but um, in the last couple of years, I moved away from working full-time in professional football to um, working in a part academic role at St. Mary's University, where I teach strength and conditioning and sports science, um, undergrad and postgrad students. And um, I um, do like a technical lead role at the Royal Ballet Company, where I lead the strength and conditioning coaches that we have embedded at the Royal Ballet Company. Um, and I guess um, to understand the um, demands of, of ballet, you know, or to understand this problem better, it's probably easiest to compare it to an environment like, you know, like a field sport training environment like football. So in football, players arrive generally a similar time in the morning. They have their meals at fixed times around training, and you can very easily plan the timing of their meals around training to optimize recovery or help to optimize recovery, certainly. Um, but the problem, the main problem with ballet is that um, um, at the Royal Ballet, we've got, you know, around 90 professional dancers and each of those dancers generally have individualized timetables of uh, rehearsals for different levels of shows and different roles of shows. So it's very hard to um, 
accurately periodize their meal times and their um, nutritional practice um, consistently across the week. And so education around timing of, of intake of food and um, trying to promote a um, like a snacking based culture as opposed to, you know, two, three, four, maybe primary meals per day um, is really important. And it, it, it's important in this case because these guys often train for six to eight hours a day as opposed to two. And so we need a sustained level of, of energy exposure um, across the day um, to, you know, satisfy those energetic demands, really. Um, so combine this kind of picture of high training load with the um, fact that there's a huge pressure on ballet dancers to be very lean um, because of aesthetic reasons. And it's a bit of a concoc concoction for um, uh, the potential of, you know, um, problems like relative energy deficit, um, for example, uh, which rears its head at times in our environment. And so, yes, it's a very complex problem. And I would say that the primary challenge of working in ballet is regulating energy intake across the day and satisfying energetic needs such that the anthropometric profile of dancers um, is um, healthy and, you know, optimal. Okay, the final question that I've been asked is uh, to talk through what my ongoing research is and how I hope it will impact performance. And I guess the easiest way to answer this is to split my ongoing research between football and ballet because um, you know my, my personal research is in football, but there, but then we've got um, PhD students embedded at the Royal Ballet that are doing you know really really interesting stuff. Um, and so let's start with the, the football stuff. So um, my research in football is um, exploring the relationships between load and performance and load and salivary biomarkers principally. So immune measures and hormones. Um, and the reason that I'm interested in the relationship between load and performance is because the general narrative in research in football at the moment is in exploring the relationship between load and injury. And um, a lot of the criticisms around football science at the moment um, are concerned with um, creating like a, a very conservative approach to sports science support, as opposed to um, creating like a performance-led approach. You know, trying to trying to drive better athletes that, that are excellent football players, for example. And so, you know, we we've collected a lot of data over a number of years to explore these relationships and. Um, our data interestingly shows that, you know, some of the exponentially weighted moving average um, chronic markers of high intensity load are associated with better match play physical performances when you statistically control for situational and contextual variables in games. Um, and our ongoing work is um, modelling the um, contributing load variables that most closely relate to changes in players immune function and players endocrine function you know and obviously um, endocrine function is is um, very important when it comes to player recovery and recovery status is in a constant state of flux across the competitive season so these are the things that I'm interested in and um, what I hope is going to happen is that um, I'm going to produce some research that impacts I, I wouldn't say changes but impacts the research narrative around um, load um, and whilst accepting that injury is very important and we need to mitigate injury risk 
um, trying to create more of a positive message around the beneficial effects of chronic load, um, you know, in, in terms of contributing to performance. And then our ongoing work at the ballet is uh, very novel, actually, because um, there's historically been very little um, um, research in professional ballet dancers of any real quality, if I'm honest, in terms of quantifying load in the same way that the field sports science groups do. So, for example, there's very little data published on um, um, quantifying jump load and um, jump intensity, you know, in ballet dancers and understanding what that looks like. Um, you know, per day, per week, per month, per year, and how that relates to injury risk, illness risk, and performance. And so we're modeling these things, you know, to give you an idea, our data demonstrates that dancers might jump anywhere up to 4,000 times a week, you know, uh, which might equate to 16 to 20,000 jumps per month. Um, and we're very interested in what the, um, what the implications of that type of load are so that we can start shaping best practice recommendations for managing professional dancers, i.e. Um, the boundaries that, that might be deemed to be safe and the physical profiles that might, um, might be useful moderators to injury risk in ballet dancers, be it strength, eccentric strength, concentric strength, um, plyometric capacity, you know, those sorts of things. That, that's our, um, our primary interest at the ballet. So really, um, in short, across both of those activities, so football and ballet, um, trying to uh, understand some of the factors that, that underpin performance, relate to injury, but underpin performance, and, and trying, to, um, trying to produce some work that um, S&C coaches and sports scientists in practice can um, instantly apply to their daily practice would be um, amazing for me to see. So a huge thanks to Matt there for his far-reaching expertise. He discussed how nutrition in football should focus on getting the basics right, of periodising nutrition around training load and competition structures. Specialist nutritionalists are a great aid to this and they're becoming increasingly common, which is a great thing. A good resource to help players away from the training ground is integral. And this is a shameless plug, but this is why ColourFit is doing so well, as it provides intuitive and practical guide to making appropriate meals away from the club. And if you want a trial, please get in touch. One of the main challenges in supporting ballet dancers is balancing the energy provision needed for their extensive training loads against the aesthetic needs to be extremely lean. And this requires good planning, regular snacking, a focus on nutrients and education to avoid the disastrous consequences of REDS. Matt's PhD research sounds absolutely fascinating. We certainly have a cultural problem of overprotecting our players in the UK, but with Matt's research indicating that high chronic loads have a beneficial effect on performance and injury, it's key we don't fall into this trap. Applying high loads when appropriate is going to be beneficial both to performance and injury. Load within ballet dancers is in its infancy, but they clearly are exposed to very high loads, so I can't wait to see what Matt's research group produces in terms of guidelines. Thanks again to Matt, and please subscribe and review the ColourFit podcast, and you can see the full videos on the ColourFit YouTube. Take care, and hopefully I'll see you next week.